0: It was Communion Sabbath here a few months ago. The table was spread with the bread and the cup. Before we shared that supper together, we studied a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of Mark, Mark 7, where Jesus and his disciples were being scrutinized for not washing their hands the proper way. They weren't following the cleanliness rituals. This was a problem for the Pharisees. Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands, their utensils, and all these things properly, and therefore they were contaminating themselves, which means distancing themselves from God. Mark 7 says that Jesus called the people to him, and he said, Listen to me and hear what I need to say. It is not what comes from outside the body going in which contaminates but it is what that which is inside the body that comes out. It is that which is in the heart, in the mind, which contaminates things in the world. And Jesus goes on to list murdering and slander and a long list there. We studied Mark chapter 7. We celebrated the bread and the cup. Our communion service finished. I stood at the door and greeted people on the way out, which is where I received a piece of paper, folded up, a note. Danine Matsuda had written, Danine is our children's choir director. I think they're still on vacation, but I saw her mom here today. With permission, I'll share what Danine had on this note for me. She said, "Dear Pastor Chris, thank you for the sermon today. It was immediately relevant." As we sat with the bread and the cup, I held my little cup of grape juice in my hand, only to notice a bug floating on the top. (laughs) Dead. However, after carefully thinking about that bug, with confidence I drank it up. Knowing that what comes from outside could not possibly contaminate. It's what's within that I must worry about. Now, that is a combination, a will of the head and the heart that's necessary when we listen to Jesus. So we decided Jesus on the Ten Commandments for two weeks. What happens when Jesus enters the conversation on the Ten Commandments? Last week we began in Mark chapter 12 where we noticed Jesus is in the middle of conversational push and shove. It's less about gathering information. It's more about who ends in the superior position in the conversation in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has been under question since Mark 9, and we arrive at chapter 12 with the verses that the mocks read for us earlier. Keep in mind that all good teachers are supposed to have this skill of summarizing a large body of information. So it's with that in mind, someone steps forward to Jesus from the back of the crowd and says, but which is the greatest commandment? That means summarize them for us, good teacher. We'll read again what we heard earlier, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. Of all of the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, this is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that this person had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one from then on dared ask him any more questions. Quoting from Leviticus Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6, Jesus answers the question with words that should sound familiar. Love God and love one another. And the text says no one else asked any more questions. And it is true, the next time Jesus receives a question, he's on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. So it is interesting to note that in the Gospel of Mark, the last public teaching Jesus gives, really, in front of the crowds is love God and love your neighbor. It's worth noting. Last week we said, love God. We could read nicely as, keep on listening, O Israel, your God is one, your God is sound, your God is trustworthy and has a track record, therefore you may love this God, you may attach yourself to this God, you may see yourself stuck together with this one God, and when you do that, do it with everything you have, love love this God with all parts of you and all parts of your life. Now the second part of the commandment in verse 33 here, B, love your neighbor as yourself. If this is an Old Testament audience, you know the Israelites to be told love your neighbor in Leviticus 19, that's easy to understand. My neighbor is my fellow Israelite. My neighbor is the one who believes in the same God I believe in. And soon it's taken to mean my neighbor is anyone who moves into our region and, and joins our tribe and also starts worshiping our God. We could think of them as converts. My neighbor is that. So that by the time we get to the New Testament environment and, and Jesus says love your neighbor, the Jews know, yes, love my neighbor means love my fellow Jew, love the Jew who's like me. We it's not news. Doesn't make it easy, but it isn't news, per se, to love your neighbor. Love love the person who's like you. It's very much like these toddlers in the grocery store. Someone moves into your neighborhood who's like you, and it's pretty easy to reach across and love someone who's similar. There isn't a challenge with that. I want you to see this picture, so I'll just hesitate. It's very much like us, with the Spanish group among us, we speak the same language for the most part, and we're already Christians, and we're already Adventist Christians, and we already believe in the same gospel, and have a similar mission. It's easy to love our Spanish congregation. They're our neighbors. They're so much like us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy when this is my definition of neighbor. However, if I move to the Gospel of Luke, there's a different story being told. In the Gospel of Luke, the crowd is not silent. The answer Jesus gives does not settle the conversation. In the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is asked, Good teacher, tell us the greatest commandment, and Jesus answers, someone says from the crowd, and you know this question well from Luke chapter 10, verse 29, And who is my neighbor? to keep the conversation going, to further challenge Jesus. Jesus tells a story we know so well. There is a man walking in the desert. It's a common person. He's attacked by robbers. He's left for dead. The story is told that the first righteous person comes, passes by this hurt man. The second righteous traveler passes by also. A third person comes by not righteous, The third person is a Samaritan. The third person stops, cleans the wounds, binds them, takes the traveler to an inn and makes sure they're safe. Jesus asks the question, Who is your neighbor? The one who showed mercy. Go and do likewise. So when Jesus is asked, Who is your neighbor? He answers with, Well, what did you see in front of your eyes here? Which one was the neighbor? See, the question in this story, the way it's answered, well, it is no wonder it's called one of the most well-known and one of Jesus' most masterful stories. If he just wants to teach us that we should care for those in our path who need help, he could have told a story of one, two, three characters, and finally someone got help. Therefore, the moral of the story is help the sick person. But Jesus creates these characters. He creates the good cleric. The priest, the Levite, the good characters who pass by. And then he creates the bad Samaritan, the person we know to be full of hatred towards Jews and the person to be unclean and the person not to associate with. That's the person who comes and saves the day. Bad clerics, good Samaritan. It's a reversal of all the characters. And Jesus is telling much more than how to take care of the sick person in our pathway. In fact, when I say reversal of characters, to the person listening, it's almost a horrible outcome. The person listening probably identifies with the wounded traveler on the ground. That's the peasant or maybe a Jew laying on the ground. And and now you're telling me my neighbor is the despised Samaritan who's going to take care of me. Those of you who work on the campus at the university, therefore, when you pass by that statue of the Good Samaritan, pause there because the story is about so much more than servant healing. It's where it begins. The story is more challenging and more humbling than that. Now, someone listening to the story must immediately want to protest in Jesus' audience. What do you mean the Samaritan is the hero? This isn't going to work in my neighborhood. Somebody needs to get out of this story, Jesus. It's not the good Samaritan. How can you put neighbor and Samaritan in the same sentence? This is not a good story. There won't be a positive outcome. When our daughters traveled last month, they went to Rome on an educational trip with their school. We left them, and there were five female students from their academy and one young man from our church. We caught up with them two or three days later by telephone, and their auntie went along to keep them safe. It was hard to connect with them because we were all traveling in different places, but when we caught up with them, we heard they were doing marvelous. Things were going wonderfully well. Their little tour group had joined another tour group, and now our precious girls from Redlands had joined a boys' school from Boston. (laughs) Thirty teenage boys were with our daughters in Rome. We were ready to get on a plane and go to Rome. (laughs) This is not a good story. Take some characters out. This cannot have a positive outcome. It won't work in our neighborhood. Someone must be thinking that when they hear Jesus say, Good Samaritan or neighbor and Samaritan in the same sentence. Someone wants to protest. Someone must have protested. Jesus, this is not a story that will work in my neighborhood. It's a glibly asked question, really. Who is my neighbor, Jesus? Jesus answers, who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? And then he says, on this, all the law and the prophets hang in the Gospel of Matthew. Love your enemy. This sermon, a sermon on this topic, was preached a few months ago in New York City. A church member told her pastor on the way out the door, I did not agree with your sermon today. Did not surprise the preacher. She knew someone would take issue, so she questioned the woman. What was the problem? The church member said, Some people don't deserve to be loved. The pastor wondered, now what is she thinking about those who murder, those who commit acts of terror? So she asked her, are you wondering how this command could be extended to people who do evil? To the surprise of this minister, the woman answered, no, I was thinking about people in my life. I was thinking about people even in this church, people I barely tolerate, no less love. Some people don't deserve to be loved. So, with all of these various stages in between our conversation, from people who are barely tolerable, people who don't deserve to be loved, people who are, we think, people who are difficult to love, to love your enemy with our prejudices, our realities, our hierarchies, our ideas. What do we do with these words from Jesus? Love your enemy. Can they change me? Can they persuade you to be different in your world? And do you see how it might be easier to just drink a little communion cup with a dead bug than listen to these words of Jesus? Love your enemy. To this effort, I would direct us to more words from Jesus. Matthew chapter 6. It's a proverb Jesus quotes, really. There are several sayings strung together there in Matthew. This is one of them. Matthew 6 verse 22 and 23. Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. The eyes... The eyes, if they are good, which means if they are sound. If the eyes are sound, the body will be full of light. It's an interesting proverb. You could read it individually. If my eyes, if your eyes are sound, if if they see soundly, you will be full of light. Or the body, we would be full of light if our collective eyes are sound, if they're good. It's an interesting idea, the eyes, that which, which lets information into my mind and my heart, that that with which I see my world, my eyes, and then I process and out comes my actions and my new ideas. My eyes and the way I see and having good sound eyesight is vital, Jesus says. The eyes, the rabbis used to teach that the good eye was important also. When, when one rabbi asked disciples to go and find the most important aspect, essential trait for a person to possess, one disciple came back and said to the rabbi, I have found the most essential trait necessary for a human to possess. The rabbi said, what did you find? And the disciple said, the good eye. It is necessary to possess a good eye. And the rabbis taught that a good eye is the eye that knows how to look favorably upon things, favorably upon people, favorably on situations and, and, and ideas. The good eye is worth developing, the rabbis taught. Now, there are many cultures and many societies around the world where the eye has so much power and is spoken about in terms of magical powers and religious powers as well. I didn't realize this until I traveled to Greece several years ago to study, and I I began to hear the conversation about the evil eye See, the good eye is one thing, but the evil eye is that eye which is powerful, which is negative, which supposedly could come from a higher power, which could cause problems for you or me, the evil eye. So in Greece, a very real solution to the evil eye is to find a good eye, which is a blue eye. And when you're there in the shops, you'll see all these blue eyes on keychains and on jewelry. People, people keep a blue eye close to their body. Where are all my blue-eyed colleagues this morning? This is a good story now for you blue-eyed folk. The blue eye in Greece is more powerful than the evil eye. So you want a blue eye around you. And a Saturday-born blue-eyed person is the most powerful to have around you. Anyone Saturday-born blue-eyed besides me? (laughs) Raise your hand, Doris. People want to know this. Look at that. You better keep Doris and me here. Doris, you and I... We have the power to protect these folks from the evil eye. A Saturday-born blue-eyed person in Greece. Developing the good eye. The eyes are important in cultures all around the world. The rabbis teach, develop a good eye towards humanity. It is possible for you to develop it. To see the good, to find the good, to see maybe as Jesus sees, to see maybe with the lenses of God. Would that be something? As you saw in the video, putting on a a pair of lenses that allowed you to see the world as God sees it. I picked up a pair of glasses this week and put them on sunglasses, and I think they belong to my sister because I couldn't see out of them. There was a prescription lens there. And everything was difficult, and it strained me. And, and maybe that's what it's like to develop the good eye, to put on a lens, a lens like what God would see through. So when I look at humanity, when I think about loving my neighbor, maybe I can develop an eye that will allow me in baby steps to do this. Develop the good eye. What might that look like? With a new set of lenses on, maybe the good eye that I want to develop needs to see people who have been invisible in my world. You know, we see people who look like us most often. I see people that look like me and think like me and are educated the same way I'm educated. I see those people first in my world. The people with my socioeconomical background, the people with my skin color, the people who like to go and eat at the Cheesecake Factory and eat avocado egg rolls like I like to eat and who can afford it? Those are the people in the world I see first. But there are many people in the world invisible to me. My eyes pass them over. I don't really see them. They don't really register as God's creation because I've zoned in on the people like me. When is the last time I made a friendship with someone different than me. When's the last time you had an acquaintance and a friendship with someone of a different faith tradition, someone of a different socioeconomical status, someone of a a different ethnicity? When's the last time you went into a worship service that wasn't praising the same God Almighty in the name of Jesus Christ that we do? When was the last time you watched someone else celebrate their rituals and customs and traditions that are different from ours? When I was in the Sikh temple in the spring here in Riverside with a group of students after the hour-long lecture from the teacher there, I will never forget his voice lowered and you could tell he went off script. He said, it is very uncomfortable for me to travel anymore. When I step out into the world dressed the way I'm dressed with my head covering When people look at me, all I see is fear in their eyes. He said, I am not a terrorist. I have no thoughts of ill will. And I listen to his story, and, and my eyesight begins to develop. I start to develop an eye for him in his world, in his context, what he experiences. When I went for the first time to the first AME church in South Central Los Angeles, And listen to the sermon there. It's the first time I looked around a church and saw artwork where people in the pictures, including Jesus and God, didn't look like me. And I was 30 years old. And I sit with that group of worshipers, and my good eye begins to develop. I start to see through their lens, through their world. Developing the good eye means I'll need to start seeing people in the world who have formerly been invisible to me people I have skipped over people I who don't register in my world I will have to choose to do that when when Johnny Barrett goes away he leaves this week to be a student missionary when he comes home he's gonna be a different kid we know it right he's gonna have developed eyesight from another culture just like Totten's and Kohler's and the rest of our young adults who've gone away for now this, this next school year they'll come home with an eye developed for good They'll see more like God sees in the world, I believe. Developing the good eye. Look for those who have been invisible. Number two, perhaps I will have to refuse to allow any partitioning in humanity. You know what I mean by partitioning? Us, them, here, there, at home, overseas. You and me, we're the same. Everybody else is different. Maybe I'll have to... Not allow that any longer. Partitioning of humanity. One of my professors said to me, we are all connected in this world. Do you know how many problems we would solve if we realized we're all connected in this world? For seven years I've been thinking about that. We're all connected in this world. No wonder Paul says there is neither slave or free or Jew or Gentile or any of those. Because we're all connected in this world. I can't allow partitioning of humanity if I want to have a good eye. And if you decide to take that seriously, I'll remember the first time in my home I told someone, I'm sorry, we don't speak that way in this house. We don't say those words in this house when we talk about people. No partitioning of humanity helps me develop the good eye, the eye that sees like God sees, the lenses I could put on that help me see that, that humanity, its potential, that I can see my neighbor in the world. Third, maybe this is, happens simultaneously. As I, as I don't partition humanity, and I, I choose to see those who have been invisible. I, I take myself and I, I sort of bring myself back where I belong. Think about your world. I've only thought about mine the last couple of weeks. Paying attention to every time I thought I was just a little better than the last two weeks. A little more entitled, a little more deserving, just a little superior. And it reminds me of the text we studied in January and February, Romans 12. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Maybe I need to read that text every day as I, as I elevate the rest of the world that I haven't been seen and I, I put myself where I belong. I'm not, I'm not on a higher plane. I called the county offices week before last. You know, I confess everything to you. You know, I got a speeding ticket <laughs> a while ago. And because I, I want to protest my speeding ticket, We're going six miles over the speed limit on the freeway. I I had a court appointment. Could not make the court appointment two weeks ago. I needed to call the county and change it. I couldn't do it online. I needed to talk to a person in the county office in the the traffic division. I began making my phone calls, 10 phone calls, 20 phone calls, 30 phone calls. I'm looking for a live body. And, And I'm getting a little nervous because my court date is the next day and I have visions, instead of being in staff meeting, I will be in the county jail for failure to appear. I started counting because I couldn't believe it was taking this many phone calls, 30 phone calls, 40 phone calls, 50 phone calls. I couldn't find a person, and I thought, well, perhaps I should try a new department. I'll call administration so I can complain. 50, 60 phone calls, nobody's answering the phone down there at the county offices. 60 phone calls, 70 phone calls, and we're getting close to 5 o'clock. And I'm panicked, and I'm thinking, what is wrong with these crazy people? Why can't they just answer the phone? Every time it rang, it went to an answering machine and another answering machine and taped message and no one's available. And then I thought, if I'm the county, where would I put a live person? Where would I want to make sure I don't miss the phone call? In the payments department. Where they take your money where they take your credit card number, right? So I called the payments department. On phone call number 84, I got a person. I was driving. I'd been in the office and over at the academy for appointment, and I was on the road, and I was so excited. I got a person, on, and I said to her, your phone call number 84, don't hang up. Don't hang up. I need help. Can you tell me what to do? I'm supposed to be in court tomorrow. I can't be there. I, ju- I need to know what to do. You go on the website and she begins to give me instructions and I'm driving and I say, will you just stay on the phone with me? I'll get to my computer. Don't hang up. Could you just stay with me while I go to the website you're talking about? And she said to me, well, I could do that, but then I wouldn't be getting my work done, would I? Yeah, thank you. I love it when you sympathize with me. (laughs) That's what I thought too. And what is already bubbling inside of me, I tell you, because it's ugly, and maybe you can relate to it too. She says, well, I could stay on the phone with you, but then I wouldn't be getting my work done, and ah, I said to her, did you just say that? You wouldn't be getting your work done? I'm sorry, I thought I was your work, and I hung the phone up on her. You people. (laughs) Yeah, I was in trouble now. I hung the phone up on her, but I was so furious. And inside of me, I'm thinking, who are these fools that answer the phone? Where where are the intelligent people in the world? And is everybody down there? And you know the foaming and the fuming that comes up? And all of a sudden, everybody in the world is an idiot. And I am so smart. Everybody in the world couldn't do any, enough to satisfy me. I have a busy life. I can't be bothered by this. I have things to do. I have you people. And I am so important. And it took me two hours to calm down before I realized, oh my goodness, does self, does self need to get back in the right place here? When I sense my entitlement, and I think I'm more important, and I am more educated, and I live in the most sophisticated country in the world, and I begin to become elevated, it is difficult for me to make the adjustment in my vision to develop the good eye for the rest of humanity. Do you see that? I want to develop a good eye. Do you want that? Do you want to be able to look at the world and see humans the way God sees them? Love your neighbor, love your enemy, Jesus says. We ask ourselves often about the remnant group. Those of us who would be alive at the time this world comes to a close. What will these people be like? What are defining marks of the remnant Christians who will be here when earth's history is over? And we quote from Revelation 14 when we say these people at the end of time, these are saints. Saints who, you could quote with me, couldn't you? Who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Hmm. Ellen White says in Christ's Object Lessons, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of God's character of love. Could it be, as I've said before, and I am persuaded that the remnant people are the people who are learning to love well? Could it be that the remnant people, those of us left, are those who have decided that all of our actions will come under the control of the love of God? Could it be that the remnant people, although we fail, we will work for and we will pray over and we will proceed towards and into love of this world? Is that the remnant people? Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, well then... Great teacher, what's the greatest commandment? Mm, That you love God with all your heart. That you love your enemy. Those are the words of Jesus.